Well, what a journey we have been on for most of 2023. And while there are numerous stories individually as families in this room this morning about various journeys that the Lord has allowed to unfold, uh, we as a congregation have likewise journeyed together for the better part of nine to ten months through the book of Exodus. This book is a retelling of the adventure that God's people experienced as they were miraculously brought out of slavery into Egypt and in those formative days that followed. And so let me say it a little bit more clearly to all the kids in the room. This adventure story in the book of Exodus is unlike any other story. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fiction book. It's not some make-believe fable of old. Everything in this book really did happen. In fact, in my opinion, this would be the most powerful adventure story of all time. In his helpful commentary on the book of Exodus that has been a dear companion to me throughout this study, Phil Riken introduces the book of Exodus like this. Exodus is an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. It takes place under the hot desert sun just beyond the shadows of the great pyramids. There are two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses, the liberating hero, and Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. And almost every scene is a masterpiece. The baby in the basket, the burning bush, the river of blood and the other plagues, the angel of death, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the thunder and the lightning from the mountain, the Ten Commandments, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, the golden calf, and the glory in the tabernacle. This is how Phil Riken ends this. Once this story is heard, this story is unforgettable. 34 sermons spread throughout most of 2023. And we reached the end of this book and realize God in his grace has allowed us to have a good companion in and through the book of Exodus. It's put God on display. And my prayer this, this week as I've studied is just, God, would you allow how Riken introduces the book of Exodus, would you allow that to be the story of this church? That because we've heard it yet again, we never forget it. This unforgettable journey from the groaning in slavery to the glory in the tabernacle, from captivity to covenant. And at the center of this story is not a people who've done a great deal that we should think really highly of them. No, at the center of this story is a God who has yet again done everything necessary for this people to still be his people. Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 are meant to serve as a monument for each of us to just remember the God that this book puts on display. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Never forget the mercy and the grace of this God toward his people. And good news this morning is that the same hope and the same mercy and grace that his people experienced then, because this is the God who never changes, then we, his people, experience it today. 
His mercy and grace. He's done everything to make us and to keep us as his people. And so Exodus is written in part to convince you and I that contrary to your hardships, contrary to your perceptions, contrary to the world's opinions, God is not a passive God. God has not fallen asleep at the wheel. God isn't deaf to the cries of his people, nor is he inattentive to their needs. In fact, Exodus has meant to convince you and I that God is most active, that he's keenly aware, he's keenly alert, he hears the cries of his peoples, he sees their hurts, and he comes to minister to our needs. And so before we jump into the dramatic conclusion of this book, what I want to do is just remind us of where we've been so that if God, by his spirit, were just to allow a prayer to be answered so that we might never forget this story and never forget the God who sits at the center of it and the greater Moses that this story points us to on every page. Let's pray. God, in you there is fullness of joy. And you have graced us with this book to journey together. And so as we reach, as we arrive at the ending this morning, I pray that you would give us perspective as we look back over the landscape. And I pray that what we would be enamored by is not merely the signs and the wonders not the miraculous. I pray that we would be most awed by this God, by you, who are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so would you use this sermon to help us see you and then point us to the greater Moses that we might behold Christ. Help me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. It's the end of the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So if you open the Bible, you can take any one uh, in the pew backs in front of you. Second book, Genesis, Exodus, the very end of Exodus. Chapter 40 is the last chapter, and we will be in the last few verses, 34 through 38. And if you get there, just kind of hold your place there. Or, uh, and let's remember the ground that we've covered thus far during our journey together. You will remember how Genesis closed. Genesis closed with the family of Joseph, some 70 people living in Egypt in order to survive a famine. Exodus opens, and it's interesting, Exodus opens, chapter 1 covers a few centuries, chapter 2 covers 80 years, chapters 3 through 40 covers one year. And so it's just helpful for us to know as we, as we walk through, as we have walked through, through this book, just kind of the, the perspective, and there's three major divisions in the book of Exodus, and so what I'd like for us to do, we've gone through, we've analyzed each pearl what I'd like to do is just string them up to see how they hold together this morning. And so we began first section, God is sovereign over all people. God is sovereign over all people. If you really want kind of a detailed point, you could in parentheses put, he saves his people and judges his enemies. He saves his people and judges his enemies. And all of that falls under his sovereignty. And so when we talk about God being sovereign or God having sovereignty, sovereignty would be he has the power and the right to do whatever he pleases. He's the only one. Even the most powerful nation and rulers today, they are not all sovereign. There is a limit to their power. God, this God is, is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things right and power to do as he pleases. 
But the book of Exodus has also showed, showed us, and even you heard it in Abby's testimony, it's not just that he's sovereign and he has power to do whatever he wants to do. He's also, his, he's, he's full of providence. His providence is that he's always good and right in how he uses his sovereignty. And we see that again and again. God's sovereignty on display and his providence on display. Even behind the scenes, even in the dark days, he's exercising his power and his right in ways that are always good and perfect. Well, Joseph's memory has faded as we open Exodus chapter 1. Israel has grown to what conservative estimates would say are probably around 2 to 3 million people. And because, because Israel has grown, God's people, the Hebrews, have grown up to that many people. The Egyptians are alarmed. And Pharaoh then decides to make them, in order to control them, make Egypt, uh, uh, make Israel his hired slaves. And as that oppression intensifies, Pharaoh realizes, I need to do something else. And so he calls for all young male children to be killed, born to these Hebrews. Two brave midwives defy the most powerful man on the planet at the time. And they spare the life of Hebrew baby boys, Exodus 1.17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. That then would lead to a decree once Pharaoh realizes somehow they're continuing to be born. Pharaoh then leads, uh, uh, gives a decree not just for the midwives to act in killing these baby boys as they were born, but now just a decree for all Egyptians that if they saw a baby Hebrew, that they were to throw them into the Nile River. And there's one child in particular who was born during this time, hidden for three months. And when she could not keep him hidden anymore, she sends him off in a small ark afloat the waters of the Nile that were designated by Pharaoh for his destruction. And what was meant for destruction of this boy becomes a means of life, not just for this boy, but for God's people. Of all people, as the ark is carried down with the baby Moses inside of it, of all people, Pharaoh's own daughter finds the baby and she's moved with compassion. And then in perfect providence, the baby's mother is, Moses' mother is called to be the one who would nurse him and allow him to grow up and, and be raised until he's older, all the while being paid to care for her son by Pharaoh's very own family. Years pass, Moses grows up. One day he walks out as part of Pharaoh's family. And he sees an Egyptian killing one of his fellow Israelites. And Moses then kills the Egyptian. Word gets out that Moses has killed the Egyptian. Moses then runs for his life to Midian. He settles down in Midian establishes a family of his own, and he begins to do the work of a shepherd. Little did he know the providence of God as he shepherded his family and the flock in Midian, how that would be used by God to shepherd God's people in the days ahead. And while this is unfolding, God's people are still suffering greatly. Listen to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. Then they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. And so one Pharaoh dies, another one comes into power. 
And God's people are continuing to just languish in slavery, in bondage. And they cry out. And it's been centuries of this. And the reader is asking, where is God? Verse 24 of Exodus chapter 2. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God took notice. And so wherever you find yourself, in what particular hardship, and you think, I have cried out, where is God? Rest assured, he is not blind to what is happening. God then appears to Moses in a burning bush at the beginning of Exodus chapter 3. He calls Moses to be a spokesman and to go before Pharaoh and to say, Hey, Pharaoh, let God's people go. Moses looks for all kinds of ways to get out of this. He's not wanting this job, doesn't think he's qualified. God insists. God shows Moses through signs and wonders that it's not just merely God throwing Moses to the wolves. That God is going to be with him. And God is going to show and demonstrate his authority in and through signs and wonders. If Moses will just walk in obedience, God will go and God will do what Moses can't. So Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They speak on behalf of God. Pharaoh doubles down in defiance to God, makes the labor that much uh, harder, almost impossible And yet, despite all of that, what do we read? Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. And what seems to be like a God who has fallen asleep is not what's happening. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let my people go. Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. And so God says, Moses, Let me be God. You be faithful to what I've called you to do. And we're reading this and we're thinking, okay, so why is it that God is doing all of this? What is the aim behind it all? Well, just listen. Listen to what is repeated throughout Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand. Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you you shall know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. Exodus chapter 8, verse 10. Then he said, tomorrow may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Exodus chapter 9, verse 29. Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord and the thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer so that you may know that all of the earth is the Lord's. Exodus chapter 10, verse 2. You tell this to your sons and your grandsons, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them so that you may know that I am the Lord. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments because I am the Lord. We could keep going. Everything that God is doing and what earthly speaking looks like is preserving a people. He is doing heavenly speaking for the glory and the reputation of his name. Isaiah would later say, quoting this God, Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory. To another. 
God is to be worshiped by all peoples and he will not share his glory with another. And you'll remember each plague was aimed at not just bolstering the people's confidence in this God, but also at at exposing the false hopes of the Egyptian gods and their idols. Those plagues were intended to make clear to everyone that there is no one on the earth even close to this God. And so the grace of this kind of God is not merely that he flexes in his power, but he's also desirous to be known by his people. God is a God who desires to be known. And the invitation stands this morning that you can know this God by turning your back on sin and this world and trusting in him alone. And we said this multiple times throughout the earlier parts of the book of Exodus. Because of his grace, you can know this God in his mercy. And if you choose to harden your heart and not respond to his grace, it's not that you'll never know this God. Oh, you'll know him. You just won't know him in his mercy. You'll know him in his judgment. And it is a fearful thing, a frightening thing to fall into the hands of a perfectly holy, sovereign God who is prudent in all his ways. After the nine plagues, God would perform one more sign and wonder that would bring an end to all of Pharaoh's plans. The 10th plague that God would bring to bear would be the most devastating, that there would be the death of every firstborn in the land who had not trusted in God's word. How would you know if every firstborn trusted in God's word? Well, it would be evident because the household would have sacrificed an unblemished lamb and then smeared its blood on the doorpost and the lentils of the the door. And so as the angel of death would come to each home, if the angel saw blood, he would pass over the house, holding back his deadly blow because there was a sacrifice that had been made for their guilt and their sin. Exodus chapter 12, 29 through 32 captures that story. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle, Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. There was a great cry in Egypt when this book started. And God begins to get involved And there's another great cry by a different people. There was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for for Moses and Aaron and said, Rise up and get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go and worship the Lord as you have said. And just like God said they would do in Genesis chapter 15, verse 14, God's people left captivity, but they didn't leave empty-handed. The Egyptians just began to give them stuff for the journey. Get out. They plunder them. God's people trust God, and they go only to get pinned between the Red Sea and a charging army that's out for blood. And then God does the unthinkable. He parts the Red Sea to where all of his people walk across on dry ground, and then he closes the sea back up as the Egyptian army followed, and it says that the wheels of the chariots were stuck in the mud. And and so God's people rejoice on the other side of the sea as they're as their foe, their enemy, has been defeated in these waters. They begin their trek then to Mount Sinai. And God provides manna from heaven for their hunger. He provides water from a a rock for their thirst. He provides victory in battle of the Malachites. This section is so instructive for us. Their physical slavery to Pharaoh is a visible image to our greater spiritual slavery to sin. And God provided a way of escape for them 
through the blood of an unblemished, unblemished lamb that points our attention to Jesus Christ, who for all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone, he takes away the sins of the world. And so if you're not a Christian, I would just remind you this morning that that news enslaved to a foe that you can't defeat in need of God to do something that you can't do, God graciously does in and through sending his son. Your only hope this morning is to trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, I would just call you and remind you, your only hope this morning is to trust in Christ and to worship him. And this is how God's people are to live. They receive a victory that God accomplishes and God then applies to them. And the merits of God's work brings rewards to those who believe. It brings something that they could have never achieved on their own. And that brings us to the second section of this book. Number two, God makes covenant with his people. God makes covenant with his people. We see this in chapters 19 through 24. Then we also see this picked up in 32 through 34. So 19 through 24 and then chapters 32 through 34. And so after being freed from bondage in Egypt, God brings his people to Mount Sinai. And it's here that God establishes a covenant relationship with his people. You say, how do we know that God is establishing a covenant relationship with his people? There's really two main indicators throughout these chapters. One is that there is a mediator. You have a mediator, one who stands in between God and the people, speaking to God on behalf of the people, speaking to the people on behalf of God. And that mediator is Moses. And Moses stands between God and his people, and Moses' mediation is indeed effective. There are multiple times where this sinful people almost lost the opportunity to belong to this unprecedented God. And yet Moses faithfully reminding God of his promises, taking taking judgments that God pronounces and Moses seeing those as opportunities then to lay hold to promises and to beg God to do things for the glory of his name. And God in mercy, God answers those prayers. And so not only do we see this covenant being established through the mediator, but it's also established through the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. The book of the covenant, Exodus chapters 21 through 23. So the Ten Commandments were given so that we would know both the the moral character of this God, and also just what it looks like. It's it's not just God is going to make a covenant, and the only way we're going to know what that covenant is is to know what the God is like. No, it's also we're going to know how the people respond to that. And so there's this covenant making through the giving of the law, which Paul in the New Testament would tell us really serve to expose their need, their their inability to keep the law perfectly, expose their need for a mediator to do something on their behalf before this holy God. And what do people do? Exodus 32 through 34, like almost before the ink is not even dried yet, they break this covenant with their God. And yet undeterred, God is ruthlessly committed for the glory of his name to having and keeping a people for his own glory from among all peoples. And he reestablishes the covenant with his people. And it's just helpful, I think, for us at this point to, to stop and remember this is a covenant of grace. God doesn't look at Israel while they were enslaved and say, okay, guys. Listen, if you will obey me, then I will redeem you. 
No, God out of grace reaches into the darkness of their situation, redeems them through the blood of a spotless lamb, saves them through the parting of the Red Sea, and then he gives them the law to say, now that you belong to me, this is what your life ought to look like. Not work and see if you can earn it. Receive it and then begin to live in light of it. The law would be given to teach them how to live. And again, there are so many people in our culture, in our day, in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our offices, in our classrooms, who literally think, if I can just do some of the commandments, and if I don't mess up enough, then just maybe that's good enough. And even maybe... If there is this thing called heaven, then maybe I'm getting in because of the good that I've done. I just want you to know, if if you're here and you're banking your hope on the little bit of good that you can do, I just want you to know it's a false hope. And it's also an exhausting, an exhausting effort. You will never be able to do enough. Because not only do you have, not have perfect righteousness, like even the good that you do is mixed with unrighteousness, but you also have a record of sin debt. And so the good that you do doesn't take away the sin debt that you have. You need, you need forgiveness. You need something to cancel the debt, and then you need a righteousness that you can't produce. And the good news of the book of Exodus is the whole time Moses is working on behalf of the people and you just go, man, what Moses is doing, that's right. We need Moses. And you realize, no, 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 Moses is not the answer. Moses can't do what the people need. Not fully, not completely. And praise be to God, there is a greater Moses that would come. Jesus the Christ sent by God to take on flesh and to dwell, to, da- to tabernacle among his people, to live a perfect life of perfect obedience in the place of people who never could, and to then die a death deserved for sinners in place of all who would repent and believe. And as Jesus hung on the cross, the judgment and the justice that will come to unrepentant sinners, he absorbs for those who turn from their sin. So God's wrath is coming. People are guilty. Christ steps in between and says, if you turn from your sin and trust in me alone, I will absorb the wrath that you deserve and the righteousness that I've earned, I will credit it to your account. And Jesus resurrects from the dead. And good news of good news, wonder of wonders, we can receive salvation for the forgiveness of sins that comes only through Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian this morning, I would plead with you, what are you banking your hopes on? And even if you say, I'm not ready to believe it, I would just beg you to consider it. And it would be the joy of any person in this room to just talk to you about what that may mean and look like. This God who makes covenant with his people, this God of redemption can be your God. And yes, even the likes of you, stained, shamed, dirty, you can be one of his trophies of grace. Brings us to the last section of the book of Exodus. God dwells among an undeserving people. God dwells among an undeserving people. We see this in verses, or chapters 25 through 40. At some point after the giving of the law, there's this focus that, that, that shifts where God begins to then give instructions for what it would look like for God's people to build God a portable house. And again, you just think, God doesn't need, he doesn't need a house. Like, 
God owns everything. He's in all places at all times. He doesn't need a place to dwell. And yet in mercy, God desires to be with his people. So again, just stepping back, if you are a follower of Christ, I just want to remind you this morning, no matter what you feel, God does not look at you as though you are some burden to care for and to be near. Like God longs to be with his people. If you belong to him, he longs to be with you. And so the tabernacle is necessary if the Lord is going to dwell among his people. And you begin to think, wait a minute, but his people aren't perfect like he is perfect. So how in the world can this holy, perfect God dwell with a people that are his, but a people that are not perfect and holy like he is? Well, the answer is the tabernacle. With all of its partitions, with all of its, we get most holy and then we get pretty holy and then we kind of can read and you and all of the furniture that's arranged with specific purpose, all the while separation being maintained. You just step back and you go, how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Well, surely an unholy people wouldn't know the instructions to that. And so it makes sense then that we have 13 chapters given to just details of the tabernacle. How is it that this holy God can dwell with this unholy people? God determines what's needed. He knows how to be among them and yet not to consume them. And so at the end of Exodus chapter 40, right before our passage, we see Moses in the tabernacle as the partitions and the the rooms are laid out. Moses kind of doing his Joanna Gaines staging, uh, putting all the places or the, the furniture pieces. Just kidding. Moses is not like Joanna Gaines. Just trying to be relevant. Moses putting all of the furniture where it goes. He's the one that's laying it all out. Then you get to Exodus chapter 40, verse 33. And he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus, Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. And in that moment, you realize, wait, something's missing. Okay, Moses is done. This tabernacle is done. But we didn't just build this house, portable house, house on wheels, to have a house. And what was missing at that moment was the thing that mattered most. In my sanctified imagination, I just assumed that everyone on sight, as they were, they were just knowing Moses was within, setting everything up, Moses comes out, everything is done. I just imagine there's this collective holding of the breath and waiting to see if what was missing would appear. Would God really dwell among us? Like, would he come and live among the likes of us? I'm just thinking in the moment, did they ever think, did we get it right? Oh man, was it the right, was it the right gold and not silver? Did we, do, did we do it all right? Will the Lord approve? Will he come? Moses finishes the work. And best we can tell, it appears that the people didn't wait long. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord shows his divine approval by coming and meeting with the people. The anticipation that would have been building during the construction gives way to this climactic moment of joy. 
The God who rescued them, the God who entered covenant with them, the God who remained loyal to them when they weren't loyal to God, the God who was merciful to them, who descended from Mount Sinai, has come to dwell with them. The cloud, referenced in every verse in, these, in this last section, 34 through 38. And the theme is clear that this invisible God is revealing himself through the cloud. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And oh, would this people have been familiar with this cloud. This cloud led them out of Egypt. This cloud protected them from Pharaoh's army, guided them through the wilderness and the Red Sea, covered Mount Sinai, and all of that was always at a safe distance away from them. And yet this stunning sight is unlike anything else they've ever seen. This is up close. This is among them. If Israel were frightened by the reflection of God's glory that appeared on Moses' face, I assume that the glory that would fall in the tabernacle would have overwhelmed them. And I also believe that this would have been sweet assurance for them. He really is keeping covenant with us. His presence really will dwell with us. His presence really will accompany us wherever we go. All of their concerns are alleviated. Their souls are reassured about their future when the cloud descends and fills the tabernacle. The book of Exodus begins, it opens with God's people under a different cloud, a cloud of slavery in Egypt, without hope, and it ends under an altogether different and glorious cloud. God has rescued his people and God dwells among his people. His presence, verses 36 through 38 his presence will go with them wherever they go. J. Alec Moitier says, we should be careful to note that guidance was not something that God's people looked for, but rather they waited for it. It was the Lord's business, not theirs, to get guidance right. They're no longer confined to Sinai in God's presence and with God's promise. They will set off for the promised land. And this whole book has been moving towards this dramatic conclusion. God has spared no expense to have a people for himself. A people that he dwells among. And yet there's something perplexing in this section. And perhaps you missed it when you heard Charlie read it earlier. Verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. How in the world is it possible for Moses not to be able to get in? I mean, this is the divinely appointed mediator. We could go back and we have even rehearsed some of the ways in which the Lord uniquely pulled Moses aside from everyone else and met with him. Why couldn't Moses get in? Because the glory of, of God present in the tabernacle would have been a lethal dose of God's glory for any sinner to encounter. And so you and I may think, okay, We've read Genesis, we get to Exodus, we read Exodus, and it's as if maybe the next book of the Bible has nothing to do with what we just read. That's not the case. In Exodus, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these things are purposefully written. And so we think, why in the world can Moses not get in? And if you flip your Bibles to the next page, Leviticus chapter 1, what do you read? The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or a flock. Chapter 40 ends the book of Exodus 
But it doesn't end the story. The story picks back up in Leviticus chapter 1. And Leviticus begins to spell out how sinners can approach and dwell with the Holy One through a sacrifice. The necessity of an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that would provide covering, forgiveness of sin, is what is needed. And just like Moses has been doing literally on every page throughout the book of Exodus, so he continues into the book of Leviticus. All of this points to the greatest sequel that will come when the glory of God descends from heaven and takes on flesh in the person of God the Son, Jesus incarnate. The one who would tabernacle among us. The glory of God was walking around the streets of Jerusalem for all who had eyes to see. And more than merely needing his presence, the people and you and I needed his death and his resurrection. The innocent given for the guilty, the righteous given for the unrighteous. And that's what the whole book of Exodus is pointing us to. It's pointing us to the greatest display of God's glory that doesn't come just because a portable tent is established. No, the greatest display of the glory of God we see in the person and in the work, the crucifying, wrath-absorbing, substitutionary death of Jesus and in the bodily resurrection on the third day. Exodus, the whole 34 sermons, Moses, inspired by the Spirit, has been priming our hearts to receive and to long for the greater Moses. His crucifixion and his resurrection, the greater salvation. And so when we think about what we've talked about, Exodus isn't just a story about how God requires a Passover lamb. No, Exodus is pointing us to the greater Passover lamb, Jesus, who would come to take away the sins of the world. Exodus isn't just a story about how God provides manna in the wilderness. It's pointing us to Jesus to see, no, 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 Jesus is the bread of life whom we long for and who will sustain us. Jesus is the water in the desert. Jesus is the life-giving rock. Jesus is the greater high priest. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus, Jesus is the intercessor. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is our bloody sacrifice. Jesus is the holy tabernacle. Think about the tabernacle. Jesus, not, Jesus is the door. There was one way in and out of the court. Jesus is the door, the fulfillment of that door. Jesus isn't merely the door that ushers us into the Holy of Holies. He's also the bread that we are to feast upon, the provision of God that he calls us to partake in. Jesus isn't just the bread that would have been in the rooms on the table of the showbread. He's also the light of the world, which would have been seen in the lamps and the light that was perpetually shining in the tabernacle. Jesus is the, brilliant, uh, the brilliance and the brightness of the radiance of God's glory. Jesus alone can bring us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Jesus is the better sacrifice, not like the ones that had to perpetually be offered day in, day out. No, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, one and done, dealing with sin once for all. And Jesus doesn't make his sacrifice on the bronze altar at the tabernacle. No, Jesus made his sacrifice by suffering and dying on the cross, shedding his own blood. And when he did this, he was making atonement for our sins. He was serving as the substitute for all who would turn and repent and believe. The Bible says, Hebrews chapter 9, 24 through 26, and when he dies, that curtain, that curtain that separated man from holy God, it's torn in two. Once, what once protected people from God now gives us access to him in and through the work of Christ. And so in Jesus, we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten son, the father. Jesus is our covenant keeper. He's our sin forgiver. 
He's our glory conferrer. And so don't miss Jesus. When you think of Exodus, think of the greater fulfillment that's found in Jesus. Phil Riken says, what God did for Israel was glorious. Their exodus from Egypt was so famous that people are still talking about it today. But as glorious as it was, it cannot compare to the glorious thing that God has done for his people in and through the new and better covenant. It was only the first glimmers of the glory God had prepared for us in Jesus Christ. And so the book of Exodus retells this story. The story of Jesus, the mediator who goes to God on our behalf and continues his ministry there even now. The Passover lamb who was sacrificed for our sin, the way out of slavery, the deliverer who baptizes us into his grace, the bread in the wilderness, the provider who gives what we need for daily life, the voice from the mountain declaring his law in our lives, not through audible voices today, but through the more sure voice of his word. The great God of the Exodus has saved us in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, he is the glory that we long for. And this God will never leave or forsake you because of Jesus. Even now, we enter into this God's presence to worship him because of Jesus. And one day soon, he will come down in glory unrivaled to take us up into glory, a glory that will never end. And all who trust in this God through this Christ will be saved for his glory. And I hope that we never forget that from this study. Let's pray. God, you are unrivaled. You are majestic in all your ways. We thank you for this book, for the ways in which it reminds us of your work and the ways in which it points us to your greater work. And so would you satisfy every longing heart this morning with more of Jesus? And so in this moment of silence, speak now, we pray in his name.